0: Rod Serling. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Patricia Power's eerie saga of a neighborhood we seized. Face of the foe. Starring Jessica Walter, Joseph Campanella, and Judy Karn in Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour.
1: Mutual Broadcasting System presents the Zero Hour. Sponsored in part by Big Red Chewing Tobacco, V8 Vegetable Juice, and State Farm Insurance. This is the Zero Hour on Mutual Radio.
0: Winter in Montreal cold blustery a good time to stay indoors around a warm fire especially if you're a young woman like Nicole Nugent and living with a female friend like Laura Prescott staying indoors is an especially good idea if two women living just down the street have been murdered within the past week which they have some male companionship a shoulder to lean on would perhaps be a comfort Nicole has Christopher Galloway, but he's off working on a novel. And Laura has just returned home, accompanied by a gentle-mannered young Englishman named Julian Brooke. A comfort? Hardly. For Laura Prescott met the man while on her way home, while another man, whose face she couldn't see, was about to drag her off into the park. Face of the Foe continues after this message.
2: Three
1: billion dollars a year, that's the amount lost through shoplifting and theft in American stores annually. It is clear that a great number of those involved are not practicing criminals, but ordinary citizens. Many rationalize their actions with the common reflection, so what? They're insured, a phrase that justifies nothing. It is not only property that's at issue, it is the sacredness of all things within the community of man. Ecologists and conservationists are making the point of the interdependence of all plant and animal life. Pollution breaks the cycle. So, too, when we break the trust we owe one another in the community of man, we contribute to moral pollution. The community of man, God's club. Be an active member. This message has been brought to you by Religion in American Life in cooperation with this station.
3: Ached, my head was throbbing. And then Laura was there, back from her night class. White as a sheet. I got sick all over again.
4: A man attacked her on the street and tried to drag her off into the park.
3: Oh, Laura, how dreadful. Are you all right? Yes. I'm all right. Thanks to Mr. Brooke. You tell her about it, will you, Julie? After I pour you some brandy. Thanks, Nikki. I'm just a bit shaky, that's all. Mr. Brooks?
4: Yes, I could do this by myself. Thank you.
3: Now, tell me.
4: Well, I was driving on Cote Saint-Luc. There along the park, you know, between Godfrey and Winnicott Road. When suddenly I saw this woman on the sidewalk struggling with a man. I braked my car quickly and dashed out to help her.
3: That was a risky thing to do, but thank God you did.
4: By then, the blackguard was trying to drag her off into the park. I shouted a warning, and he let go of her and ran off, left poor Laura here shaking and sobbing on the grass.
3: Did he hurt you, Laura? No, he just handled me roughly. That's all.
4: She'll have a few bruises, I should imagine.
3: But Lord knows what he would have done if Julian hadn't stopped to help me. It was foolish of me to be walking by it especially after two women have just been murdered in this area.
4: And considering the man who accosted you might possibly have been the murderer, I think we'd better call the police.
3: I was expecting the battered little figure of Lieutenant Detective Philippe to reappear at our door in answer to Julian's call. But instead, a pair of lesser police officers arrived to take notes on the incident and firmly cautioned Laura and me to do no more walking the streets alone at night. Later in the week, I was especially glad that Julian Brooke had come into Laura's life because Norman Roxburgh, the obnoxious man in her restaurant administration class, was still giving her trouble. He even grabbed my arm and tried to keep me from getting into the taxi last night after class. I can't reason with him, Nicky. He really hurt me. As if I didn't have enough black and blue marks from that awful little encounter in the park. That is awful. But but what can you do about him? I've already done the only thing I can. Switch classes. They're on the same night, but begin and end an hour earlier. So hopefully I won't have to see anything more of Mr. Roxburgh. But a lot more of Julian Brooke? Laura only smiled, but the look in her sea-green eyes answered my question. It was Friday evening, and we were both dressing for our dates. Hers with Julian, mine with Chris and Lisa and Guy Sabarin. and Emily was also coming by to pick up the birthday cake she'd asked Laura to bake. Do you think your Aunt Emily's friend will like it? Oh, he should love it. According to Aunt Emily, Donald Hamill is a nice boy with a lot of soul. Leave it to your Aunt Emily to take in a couple of homeless boys off the street. Mm, that worries me, especially from the way she describes the other one. She thinks he may be using drugs. Mm, that could be risky. You know Aunt Emily, we should all live life to the fullest while we... <laughs> That's probably her now. I'll get it. <laughs> It was Julian Brooke, looking youthful and attractive, in a narrow-cut royal blue coat that set off his fair skin and dark blonde hair. I ushered him into the living room and told him Laura would be out in a few moments. He settled on the sofa with a cocktail, and as I left the room, I saw him bring out a pad of paper and a pen and start sketching. Laura had told me he was a designer of modern furniture. This time it was Aunt Emily, in a pair of plum velvet knickers, white silk knee socks, and a white silk blouse with ruffles of lace at her throat and wrists. She looked like a transplanted court page. And to my surprise, she had her two homeless boys in tow. Boys? This is my niece, Nicole. Nikki, this is Donald Hamill and Tony Bartha. She sat down cross-legged on the floor, as she always did. And Donald settled beside her, cradling his guitar in his lap and stroking it fondly as though it were a baby. Tony Bartha, meanwhile, stayed scowling in a corner apart from the group. Aunt Emily's sparrow-bright eyes darted at once to the sketch Julian Brooke had been doodling. It wasn't furniture design, after all, but a skillful line drawing in red ink of a sailing ship, its clouds of canvas billowing in imaginary wind, the figure of an angel blowing a trumpet at its bow. That's a really far-out sketch, Mr. Brooke. Is she a clipper ship? She's the flying
4: cloud a beauty. You a sailing enthusiast, Mrs. Teasdale?
3: Oh, yes. I love beauty and motion. You know, it's funny. I could swear I saw a very similar sketch of a clipper ship recently. Only, where?
4: Do you ever pop into the Warwick Tea Room by any chance? Of course.
3: I go there sometimes after church for Sunday brunch. They have a whole wall of clipper ships, all done in red ink, as it happens. Precisely.
4: They're all there: the Cutty Sark, the Moppley, the Flying Spurs, the Lancelot, Ariel. Oh,
3: ships have such romantic-sounding names. I must think of a magic, exciting name for my motorcycle. What do you think, Nikki? (laughs) I'm sorry, Aunt Emily. I'm only glad it's winter and you're not riding that thing. (laughs) Lovely girl, my niece. But so conservative. Aha! Let's hope this is that man of yours. I'll bet you he could think of a name. It was Chris with Guy and Lisa. They made a striking-looking couple. Lisa was a statuesque blonde with a Valkyrian profile. Her thick golden hair braided into a coronet, adding a queenly touch to her Earth Mother figure. Guy Sabrin was lean and suave-looking, his dark satyr face set off by a pair of bushy brows that curled upward like the horns of a devil, and a carefully groomed black Van Dyke beard. (gasps) A devil's beard? What, Adam? Emily? That detective investigating Kathleen Windsor's murder. He's been asking me to describe the man I saw her with in the car that day, and I couldn't for the life of me remember what he looked like. But seeing Mr. Sabrin reminded me.
5: He had a Van Dyke beard like mine?
3: Yes, Mr. Sabrin. The man had a beard like yours. Exactly like yours.
1: (laughs) tobacco-chewing, truck-driving Dave Dudley for Big Red Chewing Tobacco. Chauffeur in a big machine, rolling all day, how sweet it is with Big Red. Going up to New Orleans on time all the way, how sweet it is with Big Red. You notice it everywhere, more folks chewing Big Red Chewing Tobacco. Truck stops and the coffee's hot and conversation's fine. Hey, Mike, watch things like I'll do 59. Then you pass Big Red around and the fellas take a chew. How sweet it is with Big Red! You ought to try Big Red chewing tobacco. It's moister, smoother, more satisfying. Got a taste of his own that keeps on tasting good all chew through. Climb on board. Start chewing Big Red chewing tobacco soon. How sweet it is with Big Red. We'll return to our story in a moment.
6: Hi, I'm Pinocchio, the big nose and all that, you know. But seriously, lots of kids don't know about me. How can kids read if they don't have any books? And millions of kids, black, white, red, yellow, brown, always races, live in homes without any books. Getting books into the hands of these girls and boys is what the national program, RIF, Reading is Fundamental, is all about. Here's what RIF has found out. When kids choose the books they want because the subjects interest them and they own the book, that makes reading fun. And when reading is fun, it's just fundamental. Books want the kid's world and their abilities and their whole life. Every community needs Riff. Find out what you and Riff can do in your community. Just like RIF. Smithsonian Institution, Washington, D.C., 20560. That's WIF. R-I-F, Smithsonian Institution, Washington, D.C., 20560. Right now. If America's to go up thinking, reading is fundamental.
3: With the apartment full of people and the whole neighborhood nervous about the recent murders, Leave it to Aunt Emily to say the wrong thing at the wrong time. You have a devil's beard, Mr. Sabarin.
5: Please, Mrs. Teesdale, it's a Van Dyke or a space beard, if you like. But don't call it a devil's beard. You'll frighten my wife.
3: She's perfectly right, darling. You do have a decidedly satanic look.
5: I have some very special good news to relate later tonight. Haven't I, Lisa?
3: Oh, what is it? Can't you tell us now?
5: No, no. I've bought a special bottle of champagne to open with supper after the theater. (laughs) My news will have to keep until then.
3: Chris and I exchanged a look. It was going to be a typical Guy Savarni. His tickets to a play written by his friend, followed by his big news over a bottle of his champagne. He had to be the big shot. The last big news he'd had to share with us was the announcement of his promotion to senior salesman with the distillery firm he worked for. He had bought Lisa a mink coat to celebrate. That was Guy Sabrin's one redeeming quality in my eyes. His almost slavish devotion to Lisa. Well, your celebration may keep, but Donald's won't. Some of the boys and girls from the drop-in center are coming to share that beautiful cake you made, Laura. Have you thanked Miss Prescott, Donald? Donald? Oh, please, Aunt Emily. He doesn't have to. I was happy to do it. Donald is painfully shy, I'm afraid. But not when it comes to his music. Why don't you thank everybody with a song, Donald? That lovely one you wrote. that always makes me cry. It's
2: called City of Night. Go ahead, Donald. Asphalt and concrete, neon and steel. Nowhere. Shutter doors on the hearts, broken dreams in the concrete, murder dreams in the steel, grief in the darkness, grief in despair, nowhere, nowhere, someone to care, got to get out. spoke for a moment
3: Aunt Emily was wiping the tears from her eyes and I felt a lump in my throat I'd found myself thinking about poor Kathleen Windsor alone in her apartment the lonely love-starved prey of a depraved killer then I looked at Donald and saw his sensitive mouth begin to tremble and moisture brimming in his own eyes Donald's not used to people being good to him. My thoughtful Chris moved over to talk to the boy, while Laura put the cake in a hatbox for Aunt Emily to carry home. It seemed Aunt Emily was right about Donald Hamill. He was a nice boy with a lot of soul. She was equally right about Tony Bartha, who had done nothing but stand in the corner and look sullen the whole time. I didn't care much for his attitude either. The so-called comedy by Guy Sabrin's friend turned out to be a dismal tragedy. But Lisa's buffet dinner was more than making up for it.
5: If there was any humor in that comedy, I'm afraid it was too sick to live. Of course, the rising young novelist Christopher Galloway is a far better judge than an unpublished amateur playwright like
3: myself. Well, I've never written anything more than an occasional postcard. But I judged the play tonight to be an unqualified bomb.
5: I guess you're right. My old buddy missed the mark with that one.
3: Darling, why don't you bring out your champagne now?
5: Right. We've been waiting all evening for this big news of yours, Guy. It's worth waiting for, I promise you. Here we go. Very special champagne for a very special occasion.
3: (laughs) Oh, look at those beautiful bubbles. Mm, And I'm ready to toast. If you'll just tell us what we're toasting.
5: A toast to my beautiful wife, Lisa who is soon to make me a father.
2: Oh, Lisa! That's <laughs> wonderful!
5: Congratulations, Guy. Now that is big deal. Ah, that isn't all. I have a little something else that's a surprise to Lisa as well. A small present, my love, in honor of the occasion. Uh, Guy, what is it? Open it and see.
3: Uh, emeralds!
5: But how... I have a bit of news on my own, darling. I was just given a bonus as the firm's top salesman.
3: Guy, that's
1: marvelous. Yeah, nice going, Guy.
3: But I noticed Lisa didn't say a word. She stared at the emerald necklace for a long moment, then quietly snapped the case shut and put it away. While Chris humored Guy, I followed Lisa into the bedroom. Ah. Oh, Lisa, you're worried about something. It's not the baby, is it? Oh, no, no. The baby's
2: the most beautiful
3: thing that's happened. Then what is it? It's Guy. He worries me. A mink coat, an emerald necklace. We can't afford such things. But Guy explained. First his promotion, and now a bonus. He's making all that up. I know he is. He didn't get promoted. And there hasn't been any bonus... That, that's what worries me so, Nikki. Where is Guy getting so much money? Hey, what you got there? It looks like tomato juice. It's V.A. What you got there? It's V.A. Looks like tomato juice. It's V.A. Try it. Wow. It sure doesn't taste like tomato juice. Like V8. A great natural blend of garden
0: vegetables. v cocktail vegetable juice V8. Certainly, State Farm has been one of the most competitive companies when it comes to rates. State Farm agent Bob Westbrook talks about car insurance value. But I think even more important than rates to most people is the service they know they're buying. With State Farm, you're in a position to get more service from more agents throughout the entire country than any other company in the industry. Like a good neighbor, farm is there.
1: The zero hour continues after this. Charlotte, I'm home.
3: The supper's not ready, Chester.
1: Should I go back to the office? No, stay. Hmm. Well, what are we having?
3: In the casserole. Sure.
1: Ch- we had tuna casserole last week. Hey,
3: it's the same one. There was some left over.
1: Yeah, I'm not hungry.
3: You said we have to start watching our pennies.
1: I would rather starve than eat tuna casserole again.
3: Well, when we got married, you said you loved tuna
1: casserole. Yeah, before you get married, you love everything.
3: Oh, I'll put it on a different plate. Maybe it'll taste
1: different. Charlotte, you know I hate tuna casserole.
3: Well, close your eyes and pretend it's
1: steak. Sure. Well, why don't I close my eyes and pretend I'm a retired millionaire and you're the galloping gourmet? gourmet. Uh, Social Security can't help Charlotte's cooking, but it can help Chester's retirement plans. Today, nearly 17 million retired workers and their dependents are getting Social Security retirement benefits. And for nearly every 165 or over, Medicare benefits are available to help pay hospital and doctor bills. For more information, call your nearest Social Security office.
3: It was Aunt Emily calling to tell Laura how much everybody had enjoyed her Schwarzwalder Kirschtort. Donald had had a successful party with the kids from the drop-in center. He had played his guitar and they had all wrapped around the clock, as Aunt Emily put it. But then she got on the subject of Tony Bartha. I've seen him hanging around Crestview Public School several times lately. Why would someone his age want to hang around in elementary
2: school? My
3: point exactly. And the other day I saw him talking to a man in a big flashy car parked at the corner by the school. When he saw me, they stopped talking and the man quickly drove away. Did you ask Tony about it? Yes. He said the man had just been asking for some directions. But I don't think I can take Tony at his word. Aunt Emily, do you think there might be a connection between Tony's taking drugs and... Well... Could he be selling them to schoolchildren? That very thought occurred to me. He's no good, I'm afraid. Certainly he's no good for Donald. Then you shouldn't be letting him stay at your house. I've decided I'm not going to any longer. I'm telling him tonight that he has to leave by Monday. He can sleep at the settler until he finds someplace else to go. I hope he doesn't give you any problem about leaving. He's such a surly character. Oh, he'll give me some of his lip, I suppose. But don't worry, I'll just tune him out here. By the time Sunday afternoon rolled along, Laura was out on still another date with Julian Brooke, and after slaving all weekend over a hot bobbin, I was eagerly looking forward to my promised afternoon and evening with Chris. We were going to go antique shop browsing in Old Montreal, then have dinner.
0: I'm
5: sorry to disappoint you, Nicky, but I have to write this afternoon. You go ahead, and I'll meet you wherever you say for dinner.
3: But, Chris, you promised.
5: I know I did, Muffet, but I didn't get my quota of pages done this morning, so I'll just have to keep at it.
3: But it's only a matter of a few hours.
5: A few hours counts a lot when you're on a deadline. Now, you know how it is when I'm in the middle of a book.
3: I know that the book always seems to be more important than anything else.
5: That's not true, Nicole, but it is my work, and I expect you to understand. I said I'd meet you for dinner. Now, isn't that good enough?
3: And what am I supposed to do between the time the shops close at 5 and you meet me at 7? Walk the streets?
5: Go into Notre Dame Cathedral and pray for my soul. I'll be here, Nicole. If you still want to have dinner, call me.
3: The only times Chris ever called me by my given name, Nicole, was when he was angry. That's the way it would always be with Chris and me. There would always be a book between us. A damned book. Oh, I knew I was being childish, but I was feeling neglected. I looked at the summer frock I had just finished hemming and thought of my trip to Jamaica. Maybe I would meet someone else. Someone who wouldn't put his work ahead of me. One thing I was sure of, I wasn't going to call Chris back. I'd find somebody else to go shopping and have dinner with. And if it couldn't be a man at the moment, well, there was always Aunt Emily. I'm sorry, Nikki, but it appears I've got hold of that flu bug of yours. In fact, as soon as one of the boys come in, I'm going to send him over to borrow a heating pad from you, if you don't mind. Of course, Aunt Emily. And I hope you feel better soon. Oh, I will, dear. You know me. I never stay down for long. And it's just as well about this afternoon. Antiques aren't really my bag. They're too old for me. <laughs> You're right, Aunt Emily. They are. Oh, there's the door. Probably one of the boys now. Ciao, dear. So I stayed home, watched TV, and cooked myself a lonely hamburger for dinner. Too stubborn to call Chris and apologize. Matter of the boys had showed up to borrow the heating pad for Aunt Emily, so I decided to take it over to her myself. Perhaps I could cheer her up a little, I thought, but I knew it was far more likely it would be she who cheered me up. Feeling depressed over my quarrel with Chris, I gave no thought to my walking alone to Winnicott Road. Aunt Emily's apartment building was on the corner. The main entrance was on Côte Saint-Luc, but I always used the side door on Winnicott. My aunt's apartment was on the main floor, number three. I was about to knock when I noticed the door wasn't quite closed. The boys probably hadn't closed it on their way in. I'd tell Aunt Emily to caution them not to be so careless. I pushed the door open and walked in, calling out so that Aunt Emily wouldn't be startled. Aunt Emily, Aunt Emily, it's Nicky. The apartment was deathly quiet. Aunt Emily must be asleep, I thought. I crossed the living room, passed the door to the kitchen, and stopped dead. I saw her lying there on the cold linoleum, lying stiffly on her back with her bluish-tinged, fear-contorted face staring up at me. The realization slapped me across the face. Aunt Emily had been murdered.
2: Grief in the darkness, grief and despair. Nowhere, nowhere, someone to care. You are listening to Mutual's presentation
1: of The Zero Hour. Now, here are the bunkers, Jean Stapleton and Carol O'Connor.
3: The house we liked the best wasn't the one we ended up buying. It was beautiful on the outside, but we found out that there were terrible termites everywhere. It would have cost
0: us thousands of
3: dollars to really get the house in shape.
0: That's right, and we didn't figure on all the increases in property tax, maintenance, and other expenses, but... We went to H.U.G. and got some very good advice.
2: Yeah, we were pretty lucky, weren't we, Archie? Lucky? No,
0: We, we wasn't lucky. We were smart. I know some people never got as serious as us about buying a home. I've been having headaches ever since. Buying a home is a big deal. Learn
4: about house hunting, property inspection,
1: FHA-insured loans, and the responsibilities of
4: ownership in a free booklet called The Wise Home Buying Guidebook. Write HUD, Department HB, Washington, D.C., 20402.
0: What is a Harrier? It isn't a helicopter, but it could land in your
1: backyard. Harrier. It isn't a conventional jet
4: but it can match the speed of sound.
1: Carrier. It's a revolution in aviation, and the Marines are looking for good men to fly it. Carrier. Phantom. Skyhawk. Cobra. Marine Corps.
4: If you're a college man thinking of aviation, think Marine Corps, and talk to the Marine Officer who visits your school. The program is PLC Air, and there's no campus training. A few good men can even get three civilian flying lessons while they're still in college. The Marines are looking for a few good men who want to fly the Harrier, Huey, Intruder, Bronco, and the Marine Corps.
0: more with this time, rest your eyes and listen here to this week's continuing study in suspense. Face of the foe, I'm Rod Serling, and this is The Zero Hour.
1: Today's episode brought to you in part by Big Red Chewing Tobacco, V8 Juice, and State Farm Insurance. This is The Zero Hour on Mutual Radio. And once again, rest your eyes and listen here to The Zero Hour. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System.